Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. The Rookie is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie. He stood at the front of the pack. The Kraken's players crammed into the tunnel. It seemed wider than the one at Ionath Stadium. Wider and newer. In fact, everything about the stadium reeked of newness, from the full wall of multi-race vending machines in the team lobby to the smart paint lockers that changed color to suit each player's preference. The communications equipment was state-of-the-art, but what else would you expect? from a stadium sponsored by a telecom company like Earth, Ansible, and Messenger. The stadium's quality, however, faded to insignificance as the game fever started to overtake Quentin. The Kraken's players grunted and clacked and chirped and bounced and twitched with the anticipation of battle. Pheromones filled the air, the thick scent of key aggression combining with a tang of human sweat. An electrical charge ripped through the unified mass of players, cycling from one end to the other and back again. Time to draw the battle line, Yasud said from somewhere in the back, his voice muffled by the tight press of bodies packed into the tunnel. Human grunts acknowledged his words. We will accept Condor's gifts, Esclorno called out, referring to Condor Adrienne, the pioneer star quarterback. The other Sklornos chipped excitedly all of them bouncing up and down, unable to contain the energy that filled their bodies. The sensation built up quickly, thickly, so intense that Quentin couldn't even think. He could only feel, like an animal waiting to pounce. It was like the last two games, but it was different. This time, they were his to command, his to lead. This was the moment he had waited for all his life. The announcer introduced the Ionath Krakens. <laughs> Mumo Killowee roared in his deep, warlike voice, and the team surged out of the tunnel to the deafening sound of booze. Small, hard items plinked off their armor. Bits of wet matter, both cold and hot, spilled down on them as they ran onto the field. Quentin covered his head as he looked up into the stands and saw an endless sea of midnight blue and neon green, the colors of the Wittok Pioneers. He reached the sidelines. The Kraken surged around him like a python, everywhere at once, pressing in, their eyes on him, their breath in his face and on his neck. They bounced and surged and punched and clawed like a tiger in a cage. Quentin started to speak, but John Tweedy beat him to it. This is it! This is it! We need this win! We want it more than they do! We must destroy this house! The Krakens roared and clicked and jumped and pushed. Quentin felt a rush of anger. He was the quarterback. The team should be looking to him, not Tweedy. Pine is out, so we gotta pull together. This is war. We take the battle to them. Now let's go kick their asses! The team surged even tighter one last time, bouncing Quentin about like a cork in a typhoon. Then the huddle broke, and the players wandered away, preparing for the game. Quentin fumed on the sidelines. They still didn't give him enough respect. 
Well, they would all be jealous when he suited up in the blood red for Tier 1 season, and they were all at home watching Holos. The Pioneers won the toss, received the kick, and started with the ball on their own 28. Condor Adrian wasted no time, dropping back on the first play. His offensive line, a huge wall of key averaging 630 pounds, gave him all the time in the world. Adrian launched a deep pass to a streaking receiver, who sprang high in the air. Davenport, the Kraken's right cornerback, went up high as well, but she was just a step behind. The ball floated down just an inch away from her outstretched tentacles to drop perfectly into the hands of Banger, the Pioneer's receiver. The two players came down as one, but Davenport stumbled on impact. Banger sprinted the remaining 15 yards into the end zone. Ain't that a pain, Yasud said. The crowd roared like a thousand-pound bomb. Giant pom-poms and flags, all midnight blue lined with neon green, waved in the air, making the 181,500-plus crowd seem like a single, massive anemone. The kick was good. The first play of the game found the Wittok Pioneers up 7-0. Looks like we've got our work cut out for us, men, Mitchell Fayette shouted as the offense gathered to take the field. Let's get that one back. Richfield returned the kick to the Kraken's 30. The offense ran onto the field to the sound of concentrated boos. The pom-poms and banners vanished, like that same anemone pulling in its flowery tentacles at the first sign of danger. As the players huddled up, Quentin took one quick look around the stadium. Boy, they love us here, don't they? We won here two seasons ago, said Yotaro Kobayashi, the tight end. The crowd rioted. 27 beings died before they got under control. They take this stuff seriously, said Tom Perilous, the fullback. You gotta love it. Okay, boys, let's take care of business, Quentin said. He tapped his right ear hole to activate the heads-up display inside his visor. Hokor had already specified the first 20 offensive plays. Quentin knew them by heart, having reread the list at least 100 times to make sure he knew every step of every player for each and every play. 15 running plays and 5 short passing plays. Not a bomb in the bunch. But he checked again, just to be sure. The first play, Y set belly right. He tapped the button and the list of plays disappeared from the visor. Y set belly right, on one, on one, ready? Break! The Krakens moved to the line. The booing intensified. Pure hate distilled from 181,500 plus. He surveyed the defense. The Pioneers' D had given up 21 points a game. They won games with Adrian's arm. The middle linebacker, Kagan the Crazy, was a thickly built quith warrior and the most dangerous player on the team. He loved to blitz, especially delayed blitzes, and already had three sacks in the first two games. The defensive line was nothing special, allowing an average of 168 yards on the ground, hence Hokor's emphasis on running. Hokor wanted to control the ball and keep Adrian off the field as much as possible. Quentin scanned the defensive backfield and recognized his opponents for the afternoon. Palatine, the right corner, Tumwater, the safety, Westland, the free safety, and Belgrade, the left corner. 
the stats and tendencies of all four defensive backs suddenly popped into his thoughts. Information seemed to flood into his brain as if from an outside pipeline. Belgrade had poor speed. She often gave up long passes over the top. Tumwater was playing with a hurt right tentacle, and in the last game, she had avoided big hits. Palatine was a good right corner, but lacked the height and jumping ability to match premier receivers. Westland, a five-year vet, built much thicker than most Sklorno, was known for her devastating hits. Green 19! Quentin called, barely able to hear himself over the crowd. Green 19! Quentin turned to the right and handed off to Fayette. The Pioneers linebackers came quickly on a run blitz, knocking Fayette backwards, stuffing the play at the line. Quentin looked to the sidelines, but Hocor said nothing over the ear speaker. Quentin tapped his heads-up display to double-check the next play, another run. He sighed and formed up the huddle. As the first quarter wore on, it became obvious that the Pioneers weren't going to let Mitchell, the machine, Fayed, run wild. They run blitzed. They stacked linebackers in the gaps. They didn't use pass coverage formations like the nickel package, even on third downs. The Kraken's first two possessions were three and out. Quentin didn't even throw his first pass until the end of the first quarter, a completion to Kobayashi for seven yards. The Pioneers clearly didn't fear this rookie quarterback in his first start. They practically dared Hokor to beat them with the pass. Condor Adrienne struck again in the second quarter, hitting Westchester for a 52-yard strike. Quentin burned with jealousy at the Pioneer quarterback's long TD passes. He knew he could match the performance, especially against the run-oriented Pioneers defense, but he wasn't going to question Hokor anymore. He'd run the plays that were called. He felt his pulse quicken when he took the field late in the second quarter and Hokor finally outlined a passing attack. Why set double post? Hokor said. Test them downfield. If it's not open, don't throw. You got it? Quentin nodded as he moved to the huddle and called the play. The team seemed a bit listless in the huddle, as if they had already conceded defeat. The only way to get them going, Quentin knew, was with a sustained drive or a big play. He broke the huddle and lined up. The Pioneers still showed a run defense, leaving Haywick and Scarborough covered with only woman-to-woman. Quentin calmed himself, knowing he had to be cool to take advantage of the opportunity. Blue 15! Blue 15! Hut, hut! He dropped straight back, eyes following Haywick, over to Scarborough, then back to Haywick again. She already had a step on her defender. Quentin stepped up to throw, but the pocket collapsed almost immediately. A huge key lineman bore down on him from the left. Quentin dodged to his right, still looking downfield, but he sensed pressure on that side as well. He stepped up into the pocket, where Kagan met him head-on with a hit that knocked Quentin flat on his back. It was like being smacked with a wrecking ball. His eyes scrunched in pain. Quentin heard the continuing, oh, of the crowd as the holo monitors in each end zone replayed the hit. With second and long, Hokor called another pass. Kagan blitzed again. Quentin didn't have time to throw downfield and had to settle for a quick five-yard strike to Warburg. 
The Krakens tried a draw on the next play and got nowhere. Defeated once again, the offense ran off the field as the punt team came on. Quentin took off his helmet and threw it at the bench in disgust. He couldn't make things happen if he didn't have time to throw. He'd studied the Pioneer games over and over again. Their defensive line wasn't anything special. He had to get his offensive line motivated. He stood and started walking down the bench to where the key linemen were huddled in their big ball, but stopped. Donald Pine was already in front of them. Pine leaned heavily on his crutches, their tops digging into his armpits, leaving his hands free to flail about. He wildly gestured to the first lineman, then to the field, then up in the air, then back again. Pine looked furious, madder than Quentin had ever seen him. Pine was screaming them up one side and down the other, and Quentin didn't have to wonder what for. Why is he doing that? That's my job. Why was he doing it? Because the linemen listened to Pine. Once again, Pine seemed to be helping Quentin, not sabotaging him. Had he done the same thing in making Denver offer help for passing practice? At halftime, the game seemed to have slipped away. The Krakens were down 21-3, their only score coming on a nice 52-yard field goal by Ariok Morningstar. Quentin saw possibilities on almost every play, or thought he saw them, but he wasn't about to alter Hokor's calls. Maybe it was like before, like in the Hydra's game, and Hokor knew something that he didn't. He'd made the most out of the few opportunities that came his way hitting five of his 11 passes for 82 yards. The completions were nice, but he spent most of the first half flat on his back, either knocked down after the pass or dragged down for one of the three first-half sacks. That was more sacks than he'd suffered in his entire season with the Raiders. No touchdowns and one interception when a key tentacle deflected his pass at the line of scrimmage. Quentin had also scrambled for 22 rushing yards, far more out of necessity than choice. On the Kraken's home field, he could have ran for much more, but the Pioneer field's slippery footing made it hard for him to make sharp cuts. The visitor's central locker room was filled with beings dressed in orange leg armor with black trim and orange jersey stained with streaks of oily yellow. Hokor stood in the middle of the circular room, his fur extended to its full length. He ranted and raved about the offensive line's poor showing, but much like Pine's lecture on the sidelines, nobody seemed to care. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Pioneers walked away with the game, winning by an embarrassing score of 35-10. to 10. Fayette had managed one big play, breaking three tackles for a 24-yard run and the Kraken's only contribution to the weekly ESPN highlight reel. Quentin undressed at his locker, feeling neither happy nor sad about the outcome. He'd played as well as could be expected under the circumstances, the circumstances being that the offensive line didn't really give a crap about protecting him. He'd finished the day 15 of 35 for 186 yards, with 37 yards rushing. His body felt like he'd gone 10 rounds in the octagon with Korak the cutter. He thought he had taken some blows in practice, but now he knew that his own defenders had been holding back, if only just a bit. The Krakens changed in almost total quiet. They had one win, two losses, and were already two games out of first. Their chances of moving up to Tier 1 seemed nil. Nobody spoke, except for Yasud, who went from player to player, asking who was up for a night in Port Wittock's gambling district. As Quentin pulled off his chest armor, Donald Pine hobbled over, the crutches making him awkward as he slowly sat. You played well out there, Q. Quentin shrugged. Not that any of my so-called teammates would notice, or care for that matter. Pine nodded. Oh, they noticed, but you're right, they didn't care. I told you before, there's more to being quarterback than skill and talent. Listen, Gramps, I don't need a lecture. Now take off. Pine didn't move. You do need a lecture, Quentin. So did the offensive line, but I already gave them one. Several, as a matter of fact. Quentin started to speak, then stopped. He remembered Pine on the sidelines, arm waving like a madman, yelling his head off at 3,000-plus pounds of offensive line. No one else had done that. Not Warburg, not Hokor, not Quentin himself. Just Pine. Okay. Say what you gotta say. Q, you got all the talent in the world. It pours off you like stink from a skunk. Your brain works overtime. I see you come up with play adjustments that are almost as good as those of another Kraken's quarterback I know. Pine smiled with the joke. Quentin felt some of the stress fade away. Pine's smile had a way of making people feel more comfortable. Yeah, Quentin said. That Yitzhak's pretty damn creative. Pine laughed. <laughs> right, right. So you've got all the tools, but as you saw today, the greatest general in the world can't win if the troops won't go to war. The key linemen are not some random beings from their culture. They are soldiers. I've seen normal key citizens. Have you? Quentin shrugged. Just a few on the streets in Ionath. And did they look violent? Did they look strong? Quentin thought back and shook his head. They didn't look violent at all. In fact, they were human-sized probably weighing 250 pounds or so, half the weight of a Kraken's lineman. 
He hadn't realized that fact until this moment. Pine continued. The difference between a citizen and a warrior isn't as dramatic as it is in the Quith culture, where there's a completely separate subspecies built for fighting, but it's there. Key soldiers are selected from a very young age, like the equivalent of a three- or four-year-old in humans. They're trained from that time in how to fight, how to kill, how to endure pain and hardship that humans couldn't come close to handling. Most of our linemen have taken sentient life, Quentin, some with their bare hands, or so to speak. All of them participated in ground combat at one point or another. And that's supposed to excuse them for piss-poor blocking? Pine shook his head. No, you don't get it. They love blocking. They love tackling. Physical combat is a huge part of their culture. But they aren't in control of this game. They're not calling the plays. They're just doing what they're told to do. Someone has to lead them. And if they don't respect that someone... They simply don't try as hard. Quentin thought about Pine's words. So what you're telling me is that the big, mean, deadly key are kind of, kind of sensitive? Pine smiled and nodded. If you don't respect them, they're sure not going to respect you. And if they don't respect you, they're not following you. They're just going through the motions. Quentin looked off in the distance. Yasud flitted about Tom Perilous like a big mosquito. Perilous kept pushing him away, but Yasud just buzzed back again. He obviously had run out of people to go gambling with, and Perilous was his last hope. Okay, Quentin said, looking back at Pine. So, what do I do about it? You really want to know? You're not going to like it. Quentin waved his left hand in an inner circular motion as if to say, Come on, come on. The key are a very tight species, Pine said. They send nerve impulses through their skin and vocal tubes. That's why they cluster up like that all the time, on the sidelines and at night. When they're touching, they can kind of talk without speaking. That also makes for closeness amongst them, gives them a sense of tribe, of family. So they're not just sensitive, they're also touchy-feely? Pine shrugged his shoulders. I didn't cause their revolution, I just study it. You act like they're revolting. They are revolting. So what? So what if they're revolting? Do you want to win games or not? Quentin nodded. Fine. You have to stop acting like they have the plague. Touch them. Hug them the way you would any human player who did something good. I, uh, I don't really do hugs. You know what I mean, jerk. Get it in your head that you have to stop thinking of different races and start seeing all of them. Key, Quith, and Sklorno as your teammates. Quentin's face wrinkled up in guarded suspicion. I don't know, man. This seems a little too, well, seems like Kretorakian propaganda that we all have to get along as one giant race of sentience. I mean, come on. Does this stuff really work? Pine smiled and held up his right hand, fingers outstretched. Glittering championship rings adorned his middle and ring fingers. The point finally clicked home. Quentin nodded. Pine wasn't his enemy. The man was trying to help him, probably had been all along. Quentin had trouble getting his thoughts around the concept. No one had ever helped him before, not without wanting something in return. And Pine not only wanted nothing, he had everything to lose by helping Quentin. 
The more Pine helped, the more likely he was to lose his starting job. It just didn't make any sense. And Pine was an expert on the subject, proof positive being his two Galaxy Bowl wins. Quentin realized that he'd been a damn fool. He had one of the greatest players in the game trying to help him, and he'd treated that help like some kind of underhanded trick. Pine, why are you doing this? Doing what? Helping me. Pine looked confused. Because you need it. Why else? Yeah, but if you help me and I get better... Pine nodded. Oh, now I understand. I'm helping you because you're on my team. You get that yet? I need a backup that can win games. Besides, my career only has a few years left. I know that. It would be nice to... Well, it'd be nice to have someone to teach. Someone to... To... No, man, I don't know. Carry on the Don Pine tradition? Pine smiled. Sure, that works. Someone to carry on the Don Pine tradition. Thank you, Quentin said. He extended his right hand, which Pine shook. I've got a good idea on how to take your advice. Pine nodded and hobbled away on his crutches. Quentin stood and finished removing his armor. He pulled on a robe, then hit the service button in his locker. Massal the efficient appeared as if out of thin air. You rang, sir? Massal, I've had it with these nanite showers. Is there a problem, sir? No problem some steaming hot water won't fix. Get Shizzle in here immediately, then take me to the key locker room. You sure you want to do this? Shizzle asked as he flew small circles around Quentin's head. They have been known to eat humans, you know. Just be quiet until I need you to translate. Massal led them into the key locker room. Key eyes take in a larger spectrum of light than your human eyes. Consequently, only a few purple lights provide any illumination. So please watch your step. The key locker room was dark. And hot and humid enough to compete with the geothermal steam baths back on Stewart. Goodwill or no goodwill, there was no denying that the place stank. He'd thought pre-game key odors were bad, but his nose let him know those were nothing compared to the post-game scents. Smelled like rotten fish mixed in with decomposed chicken guts. Quentin ignored the smell and followed Massal to the back. Quentin heard the hiss of water jets, and his skin tingled in anticipation. He suddenly realized it had been weeks since he'd had a real shower. Massal opened a door and bowed as Quentin passed. Steam billowed out of the open door and up to the ceiling, making hazy purple clouds where it crossed in front of the dim lights. Quentin stood at the open door for one second, swallowed, then walked through. One step inside the door, he stopped cold. If he had somehow accidentally stumbled upon a scene like this, he probably would have turned and ran. This was far worse than any holy man propaganda horror holo he had seen back home. A deep pool of water sat in the middle of the circular room. The low lights made the water look black. Dozens of showerheads ringed the ceiling, angling water down to the massive creatures bundled up in the pool's center. They sat there, 
A giant, entwined ball of worm-like bodies, multi-jointed legs, pinkish mouths lined with black teeth, muscular, multi-jointed arms, orangish skin without end, and thousands of reddish-brown spots of enamel, each wet and glistening like a black ruby. They looked like a coiled, multi-headed dragon straight out of the holy book. As a kid, Quentin had seen educational movies of snakes. There was a strange mating practice for some snakes, where hundreds of them twisted into a giant, writhing pile of skin and scales and mucus. That's what the key cluster reminded him of. Only these snakes were 12 feet long and could bench press 1,300 pounds. They didn't turn their heads to look when he came in. They didn't have to. Their unblinking black eyes let them see everything at once. The ball of bodies seemed to move, to slide just a bit, and one figure slithered out of the pack. The long, thick body splashed water out of the pool and onto the tile floor as it slowly moved towards Quentin. Oddly enough, Quentin instantly recognized the oncoming key. Maybe they didn't all look alike after all. Great. Moomo Killowee as the welcome wagon. The temperamental rookie walked up until he was only a few inches from Quentin, then barked out words in his guttural language. Shizzle translated. He wants to know what you think you're doing here. Quentin swallowed. There was a whole room of them, and he was dressed in just a robe. He wanted to leave, but he wanted to win more. Two losses were enough. This is the only room with water showers, Quentin said. Shizzle started translating before the second word was even out of his mouth, and he finished only a fraction of a second after Quentin stopped. He says you should go. Quentin stepped to Mumokiloe's right, gently shouldering past the huge key as he did. The boldness of the move seemed to surprise Mumo, for it was a full second before Quentin sensed the lineman reaching out for him. Quentin avoided the multi-jointed arms by quickly diving into the water. The water was almost scalding. It felt miraculous against his skin. He arched and swam upwards, his face breaking the surface only a few feet from the giant ball of alien linemen. Mumo Killowee roared something and started to splash towards Quentin, but Killoyoit, the left tackle, barked one short, definitive syllable. Mumo Killowee stopped short of Quentin, stared at him for a second, then slithered back into the ball. Killoyoit says you can stay, Chisel said. Quentin kicked back to the pool's edge. He draped his arms on the tile and his body sank in up to his chest. Water sprayed down on his closed eyes and smiling face. The wet heat felt wonderful on his bruised body. Maybe his effort to bond with the key lineman would work, maybe it wouldn't, but at least he'd get a decent shower out of the thing. Three hours after the game, the Ionath Krakens began shuttling back up to the touchback. Yasud had managed, somehow, to cram in two hours' worth of partying. He and Tom Perilous showed up in time for the last shuttle, drunk enough that they could barely walk, but not so drunk that they couldn't sing My Girl from Satirly Six at the top of their lungs. Quentin felt sore all over, and he knew it was only a harbinger of things to come the next morning 
yet the hot soak in the key pool had lifted his spirits. It's a game. What goes on off the field is as much of a game as what happens on the field. He had been thinking about it all wrong. He hadn't needed to bond with his teammates back in the PNFL because he'd been good enough to win games almost single-handedly. But in the GFL, even at Tier 2, everyone was good. These players were the best a galaxy had to offer. The game, his new game, would be making them play as a team. He stood on the launch platform, gazing up at the twilight sky of Port Wittock. He sent someone approaching. Quentin turned to find himself facing the squat, powerful form of a quith warrior. Shyat the Thick, the backup right outside linebacker. He played behind John Tweedy, which meant that he didn't play much at all. Tweedy rarely came out of the game, thanks to his skills at defending both the run and the pass. You played well, Shyat said. It was, Quentin realized, the first time Shyat had ever spoken to him. Thanks. It wasn't enough. Shyat's carapace was a deep, silvery black. A painted unit insignia adorned his left shoulder. Under the insignia were horizontal lines, each of which, Quentin had learned, represented a combat mission. Shyat's lines ran from his insignia almost to his wrist. Enameled graphics covered his carapace, the most prominent of which was a Kraken's logo emblazoned across his midriff. On his back was an earth crab wearing a crown and holding a football. The logo of the Yucatan Sea Kings, a Tier 3 team. A ring of white surrounded Shyat's single eye, making him look even more bug-eyed than Hokor or any of the other quith. But they didn't call him Shyat the Thick for nothing. Layers and layers of powerful muscles graced his frame. His petty palps were so heavy they looked like John Tweedy's arms, and Shyat's middle arms were so thick they might as well have been Tweedy's huge legs. Shyat wore a backpack that looked to be completely stuffed. We need to win next week, Shyat said. Quentin nodded. That we do. After a moment of silence, Shyat spoke. Do you like money? It seemed a strange question, but straightforward enough. I like money just fine. Do you want to make more? Quentin said nothing, but he suddenly knew what was coming next. The dark underbelly of the GFL had avoided him, until now, it seemed. This is all juniper berries, Shyatt said, his left pedipalp reaching behind him to pat the backpack. Worth the fortune on INF. Human races control gin production. They drive up the price. The workers will pay big money for raw juniper berries. They crush them and mix them with fermented digestive acids from colorax, kind of an insect back on Quiff. I thought juniper berries were illegal. They are. Very illegal. But the system police can't search us, remember? If they do, the Credit Rockings might pull poor Wittok's GFL franchise rights. You know what would happen to the local government? Quentin shrugged. There would be riots. Beings love football. Basically, whatever we can carry on our back is ignored. Quentin nodded, wondering what a bulging backpack of processed opium might be worth back on Stewart. I got the berries, mesh, weed, heroin, sleepy, conant root, you name it. 
everything that's selling back home. So why are you telling me this? I've got a nice pipeline going. Every away game, I bring out a load of money. My contacts bring me a load of juniper berries, which I buy and bring with me when we return to Ionath. On Ionath, berries go for five to ten times what I paid for them, depending on supply. Quentin whistled. At least a 500% markup, huh? Not bad. I want to make more. If you carry a shipment next time, you'll get half the profit. Why only half? My contacts, my network. Quentin nodded. I guess that's fair enough. So you're in? Quentin shook his head. I'm not in. I don't want any part of your smuggling ring, you got that? And if you ask me again, you and I are going to go a few rounds. Shyatt's petty palps twitched in laughter. You think you could even go one round with me, human? Quentin nodded. Maybe, maybe not. But if you don't get out of my face, we're sure going to find out. He stared with cold-hearted disdain at the larger alien. Shyatt turned and walked away. Back on board the touchback, Quentin walked through the Scalorno section of the ship. While the human section was fairly spartan and decorated in subdued tones, when the decor wasn't Kraken's orange and black, that was, the Sklorno section paraded a mind-boggling maze of electric colors. Blues, purples, reds, yellows, greens, oranges, all ranging from near-black to near-neon intensity. Patterns, colors, and pictures covered the floor, the walls, and the ceiling. It was intensely beautiful and disgustingly ugly all at the same time. He found it ironic that the species with no color on their bodies decorated with more colors than anyone else. He checked his message board, which displayed a map of the ship guiding him to Denver's room. Without the map, he'd have quickly become lost in the technicolor intensity. Like all doors in this section, Denver's door was oblong, tall, and narrow, like the outline of an egg stretched lengthwise. It was different, but a door was a door. It struck Quentin that this was something, something minor, but still something, that the different races had in common. A need for privacy, or perhaps just a need to put up walls. Except the key, that was. He wasn't sure if the key even understood the concept of privacy. Quentin pushed the door buzzer. There was a brief pause. The door slid open. Denver stood there for a moment, then started to tremble. Her raspers unrolled, hitting the ground. Quentin Barnes, she said. Quentin nodded. Uh, listen, I know I've been a bit rude to you. Denver simply stared, stared and trembled. From inside the room, Milford walked up behind her. Milford also began to tremble. They both looked at him like he was some kind of, well, some kind of alien. To them, he was an alien, probably as weird and disgusting as they were to him. So I was hoping your offer was still good. We, we, we participate in making you even greater? Yes, I would appreciate that. Denver began to bounce lightly in place. Milford did the same. 
Quen could see into the room and noticed that the ceilings were at least 20 feet high. When, 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 Denver said. Quentin shrugged. Well, I'm going to be as sore as hell tomorrow, so how about we get a few reps in right now? I know the VR field is open, and we... The two receivers raced out of the room, cutting his words short as they inadvertently shoved him against the far wall. They sprinted down the hall with all their flat-out Sklorno speed, heading for the ship's center section and the VR field. Like little kids the morning of giving day, he thought, and laughed to himself as he followed them down the hall. With all the room's lights turned off, the only illumination came from the row of holotanks. The moving, flashing images cast an uneven and unsteady light on Hokor's face. Some of his players were taking the loss very hard, and others didn't seem to care at all. Michnik and Khomeini were in the cafeteria, drowning their sorrows in food. The key were also about to start their meal. Hokor heard the pitiful bleat of their prey animal. He punched a button on his remote control, turning off that monitor before the key started eating. Some players were in the infirmary, Doc tending to their wounds. In a way, Hokor wished more of his players were in the infirmary, as dozens of injuries might be a way to console himself at the humiliating loss. The Krakens were one and two, their chances of qualifying for the Tier 2 tournament almost completely destroyed. The Glory War Pigs and the Wittok Pioneers both sat at 3-0. and The way Condor Adrian was playing, he didn't see the Pioneers losing more than two games at most. The Krakens had to win their next six games to even have a chance at the playoffs. The Krakens' next game against the 0-3 Sky Demolition was the only chance to get back in the race, at least mathematically. A loss? Well, another loss meant the end of the playoff hopes, and the end of Hokor's tenure with Ionath. This would be his last season as the Kraken's coach. He knew that. Greedock wouldn't stand for it. If only Pine hadn't gone down. That was why he went after Quentin, but the talented young Nationalite needed more time. Time Hokor didn't have. Computer, where is Quentin Barnes? Quentin Barnes is utilizing the Kriegsbalik virtual practice system. Nothing new there. Hokor punched a button to call up a holo of the VR practice room. Barnes was there, as he always was. The human had taken quite a beating thanks to an offensive line that simply did not want to block for him. Yet he had kept getting up and kept playing as hard as he could. And now, only hours after the game, he was practicing yet again. Barnes dropped back, stepped up, and threw a hard crossing pattern. The throw was a bit behind the receiver. Hokor expected to see the ball pass through the outstretched holographic arms and go bouncing down the field, but it hit the arms and stuck. Hokor leaned forward. The VR players faded away, leaving not only Quentin, but Denver and Milford as well. Hokor could scarcely believe his eyes. The two Sklorno receivers ran back to Quentin and lined up for another play. (laughs) 
You have been listening to The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League Series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.